Thanks for tuning in to the third episode of the Bessie Podcast series. I'm your host, Suzanne Ponomarenko, and today we are in the studio with the outstanding service to the field of dance recipient, Ava Yasin Twa. For her capacity to reflect, contextualize, and discern dance work, providing an urgent and necessary voice for dance artists and their varied practices. For her work as a writer, educator, mentor, and activist over many decades in print, radio, and online. For strengthening the city's arts community as an important witness and international healer and a mindful presence, we are so lucky to introduce to you Ava Yasintwa. Hello, Bessie's listeners. My name is Ava Yasuntwa. I am a dance writer, primarily a dance writer in New York City, and I was so honored to receive a Bessie's Award this year for my service to the field. Oh, thank you so much. We're so happy to have you, and this is our third interview, so it's such an honor to have you um, being at the forefront of the Bessie's podcast. And I know um, when we were talking about starting this, your name came up first. Just We were so excited to share what you do with listeners um, and what you've contributed to the field of dance in New York City. So um, it's an honor to have you. So on behalf of all of the Bessies, thank you for being here. My pleasure. Okay. So, thank you. Uh, um, let's get started. So um, just first basic question. So what, dance and writing, when did the first two become a whole? Wow. Um, well, I've been writing since I was a little child, and I guess I've been dancing also since I was a little child. But um, the two came together in 1974 when I had just graduated from Fordham University mm-hmm. in the Bronx, and uh, I was kind of casting around for what was my next step. And I was not going through a very easy time with it. It was a very difficult time mm-hmm. for me. And one of the things that I remembered was just how much I enjoyed taking dance classes, because I had done that all along, Um, and how that really helped me to get in in touch with my body and with my emotional Mm -hmm. self. And uh, so I got back into my dance classes. Sort of coincidentally, if you believe in coincidences, there were two dance writing courses offered in New York City that Mm. same summer. One was, oh, at, wow. <laughs> one was at the New School, and the other was at um, what we then called Dance Theater Workshop and now mm-hmm. called New York Live Arts. And uh, they were offered back-to-back. I think one or maybe both were advertised in the Village Voice. In any case, I ran across the two of them, and something told me, you know, go for it. Um, I don't know that I had ever thought about it before, but... I knew that there was something that I wanted to share with people about my own experience with the art of dance, um, just how valuable I felt it was, how it had healed me. And, uh, you know, not even just taking dance classes, but going to see dance. Mm -hmm. I knew I had writing skills because, as I said, I'd been writing since I was a kid and I went to Fordham and I did a lot of writing there. So I knew I had the chops for that. Um, but to the idea of putting the two things together, it was just beautiful serendipity. Um, I took the two courses and I was eventually recommended to Dance Magazine and to The Village Voice. So that's how I got my start. was first published in 1976, so a couple of years after um, taking those courses, the first piece came out. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. And what styles of dance did you first connect with? And do you still feel like you're drawn to that, you know, as you're, you know, choosing dances to see and to write on? Okay, well, that's a great question because it takes me back to uh, being at Dance Magazine and having Toby Tobias, who was a wonderful dance critic and at the time was the review editor, as my editor, and um, she was very determined that I would cover pretty much everything. So I came in with maybe not a tremendous amount of experience with certain forms of dance, but she wanted to throw me out there. And so I, you know, just threw me into the pool and told me to swim, and I did. So I was seeing classical ballet, I was seeing jazz, I was seeing all sorts of uh, world dance. Um, I was seeing some uh, postmodern dance. Um, around that time, of course, it was sort of like the mid to the later period of 
the heyday of mm-hmm. postmodern dance. So I was running around seeing a lot of that stuff. And it gave me the experience of just diversifying what I felt dance was about, learning how to adapt to what I was seeing, and to figure out really how to respond to it. So it was really good training. I, I value her so much for that insistence that I do that, because I think if I left to my own devices around that, I might have pulled back on some of that and not done it. Um, today, a lot of what I review, um, I don't review ballet much anymore, or anymore, I should say. Um, most of what I do is, a lot of it, I should say, is um, postmodern dance, downtown dance, experimental stuff. Um, I love and uh, you know enjoy any opportunity to see uh, the dances that represent various world cultures. Uh, I have a real feeling, especially for world music, so um, and the spirituality of that and traditions of that. So that attracts me. And um, I am spending a lot of time lately really exploring and attempting to to document and to support the work of artists of color, mm-hmm. and in particular, black artists, and even more in particular, black women artists. So um, so that's kind of where this has taken me. And was um, Skeleton Architecture 2016 Dance Space, was that um, an extension of that idea? It was so oh. amazing. <laughs> I mean, 20 dancers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and congratulations yeah. on their winning in the best seats yeah, as well. Yeah, fantastic that they won. Oh, oh yes. my God. We are all very honored by that. When Dance Space Project came to me, Ishmael Houston Jones and Will Rawls, um, as the curators of Lost and Found, that platform for 2016, I had never done any curation before, but in the back of my mind was that I would love to do that someday. So here came this out of the blue invitation to be part of this major project, Mm -hmm. which when I got into it, I had no idea how major it was going to be. It was like so extensive. I think at that point, it was the most extensive platform that Judy Hussey Taylor had programmed Mm -hmm. for Dance Space Project. And at the time I got into it, I didn't know the half, you know, and so it was an honor to be asked to do it. I had no idea what I was going to do. And then when I heard the concept around... um, Looking back at the signature era of AIDS and the artist who we lost and the impact of Mm. that loss on current day artists, um, I don't know, my mind for some reason went to, and oh, and and Ishmael had said in one of his communiques that he was interested in healing and ritual. And that's my meat and drink. Totally. I mean, I have like a background in that as well as my dance stuff. Mm -hmm. And so when I looked at it, something about the the black lesbian poet Audre Lorde came to mind. And I was thinking of her saying that poetry is not a luxury. And immediately on top of that came the words, dance is not a luxury either. Mm -hmm. And I really decided, I, I... you know, found one of her um, essays and read through it again. And it came to me that my vision would be to have as many black women, and at that point it was black women, and it became 21 black women and gender non-conforming artists. I wanted to have a mass of bodies in Dance Space Project. Mm -hmm. I was thinking of flooding that Mm -hmm. historic space Mm -hmm. with that many dancers and maybe even more. Now, that was before I heard the real reality of the budget. So it got to be just 20, and then our, our musician, uh, Grace Osborne. Um, but the idea was really just to show those bodies in that space and to have that as an impact, a visual impact, mm-hmm. which we did. Yeah, you And did. I think it was like, wow, mm-hmm. for people to see that. And that's even before they started dancing. And once they started dancing, we went to an entirely different level with it. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, that was that was the concept, and um, I think that it was it became important to me because I had noticed in our dance community that there were uh, black women, especially black women and gender nonconforming artists, who were really killing it. You know, and some of them were young. Some of them had a legacy. 
some of them didn't, some of the people who I selected and, and invited for this had never worked together before. They may have known of each other, but they didn't know each other. Some had histories with each other. Um, and it was, in my mind, really a treat to conceive of pulling them together and having them figure out how to do this two-hour improvisation. Um, And I could not have anticipated how really well they did it. You know, I knew that they all had talents. Um, I knew that they all had a lot of of, um, courage and a lot of uh, fierceness. But I didn't, you know, you, you can never tell when you pull people together exactly how they're going to mesh. Mm-hmm. But what I saw were people who were there to support one another, to challenge one another, to spark one another, mm-hmm. and to, as a result of that, to really show something to the audience that I think they needed to see. And we had quite an amazing, it was just one evening, of course. Wow. Um, People came up to us afterwards and they wanted to know, when can we see this again? We need more of this. That People were just knocked out by it. Mm-hmm. As, is there as plans for future? Well, you know what happened? Um, soon after, fairly soon after, now we had some discussions about other opportunities and they pursued some of the other opportunities. But very soon after that, they decided to become a collective. So now they are called Skeleton Architecture. Mm-hmm. And they will be doing other things and they have done other things. Um, but it was very important for them to get together and figure out exactly what they wanted to, you know, what values they wanted to represent mm-hmm. and that they wanted to direct what they would do in the future. So that's what they're about now, um, getting together, supporting one another, uh, learning, about, learning more about one another and figuring out what are the best opportunities to take um, what are the communities that they really want to connect with? Mm-hmm. You know, what service can they provide out of not only their individual skills and histories, but what they can do as um, as an ensemble, you know, as, as a team? Um, and I have every confidence that they're going to continue and to really develop well. Uh, they are opening up the movement research festival the fall festival oh um, wonderful yeah i'm really excited about that oh yes yeah. you're yeah. really awesome that's so yeah. wonderful yeah. wonderful movement that's um fall 2018 um no actually it's, it's, it's this, or that be right now it's now it's, it's this this year that's right Is, yeah. did they also um was there any performances or talks at gibney yes they that did um gibney offered space first the first um, day, the first afternoon, was for them alone. Mm-hmm. So they could have a, ru- a studio to themselves to get together and really just, you know, collaborate and play and, you know, whatever they needed to do, which was extremely valuable. The next day, they offered workshops that was specifically for black artists and um, I understand, I didn't go to that, but I understand it was really very wonderful and successful. And the following day, they had a small um, forum that was open to the community in general. And the way they structured that, although that was originally going to be a panel, they felt like a, a panel was not quite wherever their heads were at. So what they did is they, had, they made it into a story circle. So people went around the room oh. And they told uh, stories about you know themselves and their 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 stories yeah. essentially. Now you do something called long table discussions. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You have a yeah. couple coming up. There's one next week, I think. Yes, um, a long table is a community discussion mm-hmm. that was devised. The it was conceived by Lois Weaver from Split Bridges, mm-hmm. a tremendous theater artist with a great history. Um, she had seen a movie called Antonia's Line. And in Antonia's Line, there's a family that has this long dining table outdoors. And um, they sit around the dining table in a couple of the scenes. And they also have people from their family and also from the neighborhood who come and they sit. So it's a, um, 
a big long table and more and more people approach and sit and they're all welcomed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they have different personalities, their neighborhood characters and what have you. So she looked at that and she thought, wouldn't it be great to do this thing, which was kind of performative, of having a table where community could come and talk about an issue that was of, of importance to them. So um, I went to one that PS122 did on the Lower East Side. And I you know, had never been to one before and I fell in love with it. It was so, I got it immediately, I got it. And I said, I walked away from there thinking, I really wanna do these. And so I got an opportunity to uh, work with Gibney on a couple of them. And so I've, I've kept it going. So I've done some at Gibney, and I will continue to do some more for Gibney. But I do have one coming up on November 30th at Abrams Art Center. And uh, this one is uh, around the issue of discomfort. And discomfort in terms of not only feeling uncomfortable within yourself, but feeling uncomfortable with your collaborator. Um, and these are, you know, at least the ones I've done so far are for artists. Mm -hmm. And not necessarily only for dance artists, it could be performance artists, it could be at whatever, but um, your collaborator, your, your presenter, your audience even. Um, what is the condition of discomfort in the way that you work? Can it even have a positive value for you? Which I believe it can. Yeah. You know, if, if we're dealing, if we're grappling with difficult issues mm -hmm. that are essential issues, sometimes they make us feel uncomfortable Absolutely. for a very good reason. Mm -hmm. You know, so um, I, I'm I know, probably right? not going to forget, I'm probably not going to remember all of the names, but um, Dan Fishback, Nick Kay, Joya Powell, and um, oh my goodness, who is our first? Oh, um, Ash... Jurgens, mm -hmm. um, the four uh, people who I have invited to come and be the core participants. Mm -hmm. Now, their role is very interesting. This is not a panel, and that's mm -hmm. the, that's the main mm -hmm. thing about a that's long table. That's what I table. was reading about it. The audience is also, like, it's not the audience, they're also part of the discussion. Oh, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So it's not a panel, it's not a Q&A, it's not somebody giving a, press, a formal presentation. It's it's four people or four or five or however many who come to a table and they start off the conversation. I like to call it setting the table with food for thought. And they start off the conversation, they uh, establish a certain welcoming, mm -hmm. non-hierarchical atmosphere. And other people who are seated around the table, you know, as, as quote, audience, unquote, community folks, Anybody can come up to the table at any time and say, you know, start talking as well. You might have a question, you might have a statement to make, you may have a story to share. Um, sometimes we have paper on the table and markers so people who don't necessarily want to speak whatever they're thinking, they can draw or write. Oh. Um, but you can come up and you can leave at any time. The original people, each of them have, have the right to get up and leave if they want to. If at any point the table is filled with people and somebody wants a seat, they can come and tap a person on the shoulder oh, wow. and you know ask the person Great. to yield. Mm -hmm. And maybe the person will, maybe they won't. But mm -hmm. I've never seen you know any problems with that. And it goes on, and the most you know it's like when you have a, pa a formal panel and a Q and A, there are people who sort of hang back. They may even be thinking of questions or statements, but they don't necessarily feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. In this setting, if you feel if you don't feel comfortable and you want to sit there, that's fine. But more people take part, jump in than normally would, mm -hmm. and you get a flow of energy, you get a flow of stories, you get a flow of information, and that's how the community converses in in the long table. And um, and I always say because I give like an opening introduction um, for for folks who have never done this before, I say. Sometimes if, you know, it's, it's permitted, if the conversation just really dwindles down and we have to end early, it's okay. I have never seen that happen because wow. so much stuff comes up and it's all so rich and all so diverse. You know, there's like a, um, such a combination of points of view and experiences that people share. 
I always walk away from it thinking nothing necessarily is resolved because that's not the point. But so much has come up that you can then take away and ponder and maybe use. And I, I'm sure that there are people who have walked away from long tables, not just the ones I've done, but from this format and come up with brand new ideas or things to really kind of chew on as, as they go on in their, in their lives and their work. Um, for me, that's the real beauty of it. I'm curious on what you know you, your writing habits are and how mm-hmm. they started and how you developed your voice as a writer and then how you continue to keep that today and, and what does your practice look like now? Okay, well, well. <laughs> like I said, I started very, very early on. I was writing poetry. I was writing stories as a kid. Um, I always tell people that I used to watch a lot of television, and I would take the storylines and the um, and the characters, and I would write my own storylines for them. Oh, cool. And you know, I think today they would call that fan fiction, yes, right? Yes, fan fiction. And of course, back in those days, I'm now 65, so you can imagine way back um, that term wasn't used, but that's essentially what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And um, I loved a lot of, I love comedy, I love science fiction and what have you. Um, I attempted to write stories when I was in college. I was somewhat good at it, but I, you know, I don't even know if, if I really had enough focus to really practice that. But my practice today in terms of um, dance writing, I guess it, it's, it's really less of judgmental, you know, less of I have to stand as some kind of high authority mm-hmm. about this, this art form. I know what works and what does not work. And it's really more about human-to-human response. You know, I'm, I'm, I am a person looking at other people, doing work in front of me, and, you know, there's a, human, there's a human exchange of energy and information. And I bring to my practice just a very, what I would consider an intuitive sense about what is going on there. Dance is very complicated to write about. So I think coming from a background that is about poetry, which is nonlinear, and my poetry was extremely nonlinear. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> a lot of it didn't even make sense to me. <laughs> but I enjoy, awesome. I enjoy playing with language. Mm-hmm. So I think that there is some kind of, of, of follow-through in working with something that is, is essentially nonverbal. Is essentially visual, and also physical and visceral, um, and the fact also that I did study some dance myself. You know, I studied modern dance and jazz and Middle Eastern dance, which was my great love. Oh, cool. Um, I even oh. took some um, uh, Isadora Duncan classes way, way, way back when. So, getting a sense of what it feels like to be a body in space um, and to express yourself. I think that's really essentially what I've been bringing to it. And what's your relationship with music? Oh, my God, music, music. Well, okay, so when I was a kid, (laughs) we have to go back to my childhood. Um, I've loved music forever. My family, an immigrant family from Barbados, um, my, my aunt especially used to have these huge parties. I mean, it's we're almost in, at Thanksgiving now, so this reminds me of that. Thanksgiving parties and Christmas parties, and even sometimes we would do Easter stuff. We would have these huge parties um, in her house in Corona, Queens, um, with all of her West Indian relatives, but also all of her mostly uh, African-American relative, uh, friends and co-workers. And she would play music Calypso, jazz, um, soul music. I mean, it was just rich with, with stuff. My other aunt was very interested in classical music and opera especially. Um, I grew up, you know, in the days of soul and R&B and the Beatles and, you know, the English invasion. Um, yeah. And so I come with that. 
So music was always really integral to what I was about. When I was a kid, I was very shy. Um, I was also introverted. I'm understanding those things are two different yeah, things. Yeah. But um, as a result of that, it was very difficult for me to express myself verbally in front of people, even family members. Um, but I could dance. Mm-hmm. And for some strange reason, I, I really got into the music. I really, I created a lot. And it's really odd to me that only recently, thinking back on that, I realized not only was I a budding dancer, but I was a budding choreographer. Because every time I would hit that music, it would be different. My response would be different. I was always making things up. And I could do that in front of people and not be embarrassed about it. And they loved it. Now, my family was not at in the least interested in my pursuing that as a career. Hmm. And I didn't have, you know, a model for that. Um, and I didn't really think, you know, ahead to, well, could I do this? Should I do this? I just kept taking classes, even though it wasn't something that I was, was intending to pursue professionally. Um, and I think a lot of, of what they were concerned about, and I always thought that what they were concerned about was that you can't make a living as a dancer. And being an immigrant group um, and attempting to really be, you know, being working class, my, my folks, my, my mother and my two aunts worked in the garment district. Um, and my father was a carpenter. And um, being... Uh, working class and, and aspiring to middle class, there's certain things that you have in mind for your children, right? Mm, yes. So they were very happy that I was a smart kid. Uh, they were very supportive of that. But the other stuff was like, well, maybe not. Now, thinking back also, I remembered very, very recently, this again, this is very strange, that only recently am I kind of getting this stuff. Remember one of my aunts saying, Something on the order of, well, she shouldn't do that because of what they have to do. And just recently, with all of this talk about sexual harassment Mm -hmm. in the entertainment field especially, Mm -hmm. it just dawned on me what the woman was saying. Mm -hmm. Her notion Mm -hmm. of what it meant to be a dancer back in those days, especially in a black body, probably had a lot to do with being victimized by some man Mm -hmm. for some reason okay so i i have i have every confidence that i just got the message Mm -hmm. that she didn't think it would be a good idea for me um little bayesian catholic girl (laughs) (laughs) to go into a field where as a black a woman in a black body i would be victimized by some man or men Mm -hmm. you know because the concept of what it means to be a dancer is, in some people's mind, immediately associated with sex. Absolutely. So I'm like, whoa. Wow. <laughs> um, it, it, it really floored me to kind of finally remember that, and it made me sad. It really did. And not just sad because of the, what could have been, but sad because of my God. If this is what she was hearing, and at one point they lived in Harlem, you know, I'm sure that with the connections that they had, they were, um, you know, talking to people in, you know, the entertainment field um, and and others who probably had these stories about women who had to do this or were victimized because of that. Um, And... It's to, to me, it's just like really upsetting to think about that history. Mm-hmm. As upsetting as it is to think about, well, you know, maybe I would have had a family who would have been, you know, recognized what, where I was going with my talent mm-hmm. and uh, supported that. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't what happened. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what happened was I pulled from my skill of writing And I found a way to connect with and to honor something that I felt had given me a lot of joy and healing. And, um, you know, maybe this is the way it had to turn out, Mm -hmm. you know, and and I'm pretty happy 
for the result of what happened. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and it's also like shows how that thing inside you that manifests whatever's being created is this comes from the same place. It's just expressed. You know, you're expressing it through writing. It's true. You know, and I'm it's sure you true. could kind of find that inner the innerness of the core of what that is for you. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm just very happy to be able to support this field. Um, I talk often about just how grateful I am to the dancers, to the artists who, some of whom I have never met, but I've seen their work, um, and others whom I've I've been able to not only meet but you know, interact with and maybe even collaborate with on various projects, you know, in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a very generous and interesting and intelligent community. Yes. And I feel grateful every day that I have this around me. Um, I don't know that I could have anticipated that um, I would be so lucky. And even when I started and I realized I was getting into this field, I don't know if I could have anticipated just how deeply I'd get into it. Mm-hmm and um, just how much it would feed me. And I often use the word build, you know, and I I said that even um, when I received my award, that whatever I am and whatever they are honoring is a reflection of them. You know, whatever I've given is is, uh, giving back of what I've gotten. And what I've learned is what I've learned from you folks. Mm -hmm. So, you can't do much better. You can't get much better than that. Yeah, that's. And how do you feel like as as performers? Um, how could we engage more with the dance writing world? I have worried about that many a year, actually, because I think there is this divide. But actually, this divide is um, it's not quite what it used to be because there are a lot of writers. Maybe not a lot, but there are some writers who have dance background who are doing things like blogging, or who are involved with certain websites like CultureBot, or uh, The Dance Enthusiast. And um, it that, that makes a difference because the, the divide is already bridged. You have people who are very knowledgeable on both sides. Um, my concern is that writing itself is a discipline that takes time, it takes skill, it takes a certain amount of willingness to really put the attention there. And so is dance. You know, it has its own demands. I think that you do have some folks out there who can manage both, but it's not easy. I mean, I think that um, if you're really going to put time and attention into getting really good at this, you have to to do that. Mm -hmm. But the same is true for dance. but there are people out there who you should be reading, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you're interested in bridging that divide. And, and there are people like, at the New York Times, Siobhan Burke, who I think is a wonderful, sensitive writer. Um, Maura Donahue at CultureBot is another one. So there are people who I think, um, you know, and, and you can just look around at the blogs and the various sites and um, find who really speaks to you, your your approach to the, the art um, and whose voice is interesting to you. Mm-hmm. Um, I always say that um, no matter how much a person knows, I really, I'm attracted to reading them if I'm attracted to who they are as a person, you know, how they think, how they see things. That I think is important at, for a reader to really get pulled into a writer's work. Same as when you look at a, a dance, I'm always looking for, okay, what's my entry point? You know, what's really calling me forward into this experience, this world that the, um, the artist is creating? And, you know, it often happens, and sometimes it doesn't happen. When it doesn't happen, we got a problem, yeah. you know? And so the same thing with writing. Um, not every writer is going to really mesh with you and, and vice versa. Uh, but you have to find the people that you really find interesting in that way. How do you view um, the New York City dance writing scene currently, and as far as where it's heading? What could you advise listeners who maybe are dance writers starting in the field to do to keep that flow moving forward? Mm. You know, I used to think I had some answers here, and I don't. I think Mm -hmm. we're just in a state of flux right now, because we've lost so many publications, and so there are fewer paying gigs. 
um, and certain people have them and others do not. Um, back in the day, um, you know, I had some and I don't. Um, and I started a blog and I think that, you know, it was one of the early blogs in, in dance. I think that it's still a good idea to, to do that if you're starting out. Um, find a place, create your own space to make, um, to, to practice, essentially. You know, just and just to keep at it. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's going to happen with publishing, uh, even online in the future, mm-hmm. around dance. I don't know. I, I, I absolutely don't know. But keep at it. Find mm-hmm. a way to do it. Is there any other art forms that you feel like are connected to dance that could also be another entry point that you found? Well, um, one, one of the things I found interesting was that um, I would go to theater or I'd even, like, maybe even a comedy show, and I'd be looking at bodies. Mm-hmm. You know, not just what I'm, I'm hearing, but how was, how was the energy and the um, expression and the personalization and the stories coming through how the artist is using their body. So I think that there are ways in which you can use that eye and that skill and that sensitivity and to enjoy other art forms. But beyond that, you know, be a person, (laughs) you know, develop yourself, (laughs) because that's what we're looking for. We're looking for, like, who am I reading here? Mm -hmm. You know, am I reading an interesting person? Am I reading a dull person? Uh, (laughs) Go go see other art forms. Yes, absolutely. I love film, for instance. I think if I didn't do dance writing, you know, if I, I won't say uh, that I would not have ever done dance writing, but I think that you know, in, a, in, in an alternate universe, I would have been a film critic because I have that kind of mind when I look at film and, and a broad interest in the types of film that I look at. So there's that. But, but yes, first of all, be a person, be interested in a, a ton of things, your culture, the issues that are going on in your world right now, people, nature, spirituality be somebody who is capacious with you know the resources that you can pull from if you're just going to one form of dance or if you're just going to dance that's all you're going to bring especially in today's world you've got to bring a lot and especially if you if we aspire again i have no idea who is reading dance reading dance writing except dance people you know I hope that it goes beyond that, but um, if we're going to communicate with a broad world, and I hope we want to, mm-hmm. you've got to have you know knowledge of that world. So what's going on in the world? Just be you know an interesting and interested person. Mm-hmm. Do you mentor writers? I have I have taught writing courses for dance writers. Um, I don't mentor now specifically. People on occasion ask me questions. They, they tap me for information. Um, but I have done workshops and series of workshops for writers. Nice. And yeah. Another thing I was really interested um, about, which you touched on uh, briefly, was your involvement in metaphysics and tarot, mm. which yeah. seems to be another whole huge part of you. Yeah. Um, how long have you been reading tarot? Or how, when did you pick up your first deck? Oh. <laughs> I started in the early 1980s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was always interested in a lot of occult things and psychic stuff and spiritual things and um, even things like um, uh, comparative religion because I was interested in it from the point of view of, you know, what are those connections? Once you get past the dogma and you get into the mystic, uh, you know, what are the connections beyond what we call these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and what does that say about us as human beings? And I was interested in healing. So, yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I sometimes tell this story. It's a long story. I won't get into all of it. But on my mother's side of the family, my grandfather and grandmother, um, back in the day, way back in the day in Harlem, they were actually interested in a lot of met- metaphysical stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, what we would today call hands-on healing, um, yoga, but not asana yoga, but yoga philosophy, theosophy, 
and things of that nature now and astrology and the only reason that I got to know that after these folks were dead and gone was that when my grandfather died my family gave me his books and some of those books were like <laughs> I, mean, I was like really you know Madame Blavatsky you know? <laughs> like, what was yeah. this Barbadian guy in Harlem doing reading about Madame Blavatsky and yoga philosophy and astrology and then they told me that he and his wife my grandmother who I never knew were doing what we would today call hands-on healing mm -hmm. in Harlem and the reason that the, again this family the reason that the family never talked about it was because again if you are <laughs> trying to be respectable for the most part uh, religious family you don't talk about this you just don't you know and you don't want to frighten the horses you want to um, advance yourself around certain people and they never they never talked about it but then I got those books and it, it was like well I've been interested in a lot of this stuff you know maybe not specifically but things that were connected to it for years now yeah, wow. and had I known that I mean when when I did know my grandfather, he was at an advanced age, and um, I don't know if there would, there would be a moment where I would think I could talk to him about something like that. Plus, my impression was that he was like, you know, the super Roman Catholic, so like, wow. where, you know, wow. at what moment do you bring up your interest in all sorts of bizarre things? So, Wow, that must have been like, oh, yeah, a so really big when moment. I saw those books... It was, it floored me, but also, as I thought about it more and more, I just felt like, okay, I'm part of a lineage. Yes. You know, a, a secret lineage, but I'm part, you know, it's like, it, it made me feel like, all right, yeah, I can kind of settle into this because it's part of who I am. Mm -hmm. It's um, something that also, being of a Caribbean background and an African background, I got to realize that this stuff is not anything new. I mean, I, I spent a good number of years in the 80s and, and on working in the New Age community and the women's spirituality community. There was a, um, a center, not too far from here actually, on 24th Street, um, called the Women's Rights Center, R-I-T-E-S. And it was for uh. goddess spirituality, women's spirituality, and that's where I had my first opportunity to work with ritual. I created a lot of rituals mm. there. And uh, unfortunately, they closed it after a few years. Um, but then I continued on, you know, with, with the practices. But it, it's, it's something that I think um, was an important foundation for me in terms of getting back to my own history as a person coming from an African background, mm -hmm. you know, an African and African uh, Caribbean background, that none of these things that uh, they taught there or at the New York Open Center, which where I was one of the mm -hmm. very first volunteers. Oh, wow, I love though. New York, I got um, my Reiki certificates there. I uh, love the uh, New York uh, Open, okay. the newer one, they moved. Yes, yeah. yes, but the very first one, I'll tell you how early on it was. Mm -hmm. People were still calling on the phone to get catalogs, and I was still writing their names in pen on the catalogs, their names and address, just to mail it out and mailing it oh. out by hand. That's how early on it was. And then, you know, I stayed involved with them for a number of years. But a lot of the stuff, if I look in my own background, Caribbean background, African background, it's there. You know, and it's just that um, mainstream religion stripped a lot of that stuff from us, mm -hmm. and it stripped a lot of that stuff from our society in general, so that people look at that as being very off, you know, or very strange or very woo-woo or whatever, whereas in reality, it comes from, you know, the people, you yeah. know, and from um, original cultures and traditional cultures. And a lot of what you'll see in um, New Age practice has its antecedent in things that people did and in some cases still do, you know, in, in traditional cultures. 
So, um, yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> I feel like it's getting hyped up now. I just feel like cause everyone's in need of, especially this climate that we're in now, everyone's oh kind of in need of yeah. some kind of salvation or desperation to calm and to heal. Well, we, we're in a very traumatic time. We've gone through tremendous trauma. Uh, we're also sitting in a situation right now in this country where our values are upside down and being questioned and tested daily. I mean, I don't think you can look at anything that's going on and, and say, okay, the American people have their values on straight. We do not. Something is, is you know, ripping that out from under mm-hmm. us. And I think there are people who are um, attempting to, number one, get back in balance, you know, either physically or emotionally or spiritually, get some kind of sense of balance and get some sense of values and trying to, you know, also just show that we can do better, you know. So spirituality has a, um, a lot to do with that, a lot. And um, it is for a lot of people saving grace, but, you know, people experience it or practice it in a variety of ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it shows up in a lot of art in pieces. Art, I'm yes. sure you see that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, every bit as much as you see more artists um, addressing social issues, I think you are seeing artists addressing our need for healing mm-hmm. and our need for really just clarifying who we are as as human beings yeah absolutely absolutely that's and then is there anything else um you would like to say to listeners who um maybe aren't in another place or don't have the resources we have in new york city as far as like staying true to themselves or you know really developing a craft um that could really be something of their own Mm. Wow, that's a really broad question. Yes. I, 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 would, <laughs> I would say that it's very important that you really look at what matters most to you. Um, and it's, it's important to do it on a local level. You know, I think we sometimes get very, conf- I don't want to say confused, but distracted and distressed by a lot. There are a lot of things coming at us Mm -hmm. from different directions and we could just get very frustrated and shut down. I find it important to work with things that are close to you that matter. Um, It's okay if it matters to the point that it makes you mad because getting angry about something tells you what you really care about. You know, so I think anger can be an important uh, tool and a spur for action. Um, what do you most care about in your local setting, in your local community? Um, work on that. Um, yes, you can care, and yes, you can maybe take some actions that are broader than that, but do work close to home, and do your best to, be, um, to learn, to be sensitive, um, to find out what it is that you can best offer, um, and really mostly listen. Do a lot of listening. Um, the more you listen and the more you learn about what is needed in a situation, the better you can respond. And I think that that really goes back to my, my practice in dance as a dance writer, uh, going to dance, I go there to observe and to listen and to respond. I don't go there thinking that I know it all or that I've got um, like a sense of what should happen. I want to see what's happening and then I want to see how that makes me feel. And then I want to see what I can do um, as, you know, as a response to that. And I think that, that it, it, it's similar uh, for for an artist, it's similar for an activist, that you go into a situation and your intention is to learn as much as possible and to be as sensitive as possible. Um, and then to respond as, as a human being, mm-hmm. you know, to all of that. Mm-hmm. And then what's next for you after your 2017 Service wow. of the Field Award? Because okay. you're very valued, so... Well, I'm sure you. this is um, not the end of the line for you. No, but just it's, the it's, oh, God. 
not only is it not the end of the line, I get so I get so many requests for one thing or another. And the strangest request, at least from my perspective, is that people have asked if I want to perform in things. Oh, wow. That'd and that even started like before, even in the lead up to the Bessie Award, I was getting like these requests. Somebody was uh, sent me a Facebook message and said, and I think it was like the same week, you know, oh, this weekend I'm doing this music video up in Woodstock or something or other, and would you be... It's like, I can't make a turnaround. Like, <laughs> I had other things. Plus, yeah. me and a music, why? You know? It's like that. People have been asking me mm-hmm. to do performances. What well, I don't know why. But I am very committed to these long tables. I'm very mm-hmm. committed to these community discussions and, and conversations about things that matter. And I've been really instigating from one organization and project to another to somehow turn their ship around so that we could have um, a long table instead of maybe a panel yeah, <laughs> you know? yes, or a long yeah. table instead of a workshop yeah you know uh, so it just keeps um, spurring me to do more and more in that direction mm-hmm. and uh, so I, I that is at least one thing that I know that I will continue definitely mm-hmm. I will continue doing Wonderful. And then um, just for our listeners, where is a good place for people to connect with you? Um, if you go to my blog, which is Infinite Body, which is all one word, capital I, capital B, um, you will you know, find a way to not only connect to what I have there, but also you'll see certain links to other things that I have online. So that is um, HTTPS blah, 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 www, um, infinite body, all one word, dot blogspot.com. You have to know that it's not infinitebody.com because if you go to infinitebody.com, I believe you get a, a tattoo Oh, well, that makes sense. Infinite so it's a body. little different, <laughs> a little right? <laughs> body. <laughs> so it's blogspot. It's the blogger. It's Google's mm-hmm. blogger um, function feature mm-hmm. well wonderful and, and then um thank you so much for talking with us uh, i'm really ex- we're really happy to have you and we're really excited for you to inspire our listeners thank so you so thank you it means a lot to us my pleasure yeah, thank, thank you, you so much Thank you for listening, and please check out Ava Yasintois' amazing blog at https infinitebody.blogspot.com.